Thanks for being here this evening. My name is Kevin Conover, and we're broadcasting down here from Southern California. We're on KPraise, 1210 AM, and we're also on FM 106.1 in North County. And uh, we've got a great uh, opportunity to learn some very interesting stuff tonight. My website is educateforlife.org. There's all kinds of interviews up there. We've got over 100 interviews with experts from all over the world talking about how God has ministered to them and through them. And this evening, we have Dr. Jeremy Lyon. He's Associate Professor of Old Testament Hebrew at Truett McConnell University. He's also the author of Qumran, Interpretation of the Genesis Flood, and the Genesis Creation Account in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so he has his PhD in Old Testament from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, he is uh, an expert on uh, Old Testament um, uh, and biblical languages. Uh, Dr. Lyon, thanks for being here this evening. Hey, it's great to be here. Absolutely. Uh, it's interesting. I just got got uh, finished putting together a, a message. I, I spoke at several churches on prophecy and uh, the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, looking at Qumran. So uh, this is perfect timing. I've got all kinds of questions. I'm very interested in this subject matter. So, <laughs> okay. um, so it's, it's interesting. Um, give us a little back, a bit of background about why you decided to focus on uh, Qumran specifically. Why, why Qumran? Why Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, yeah. um, <clears throat> spent a lot of time in the Hebrew Bible, so the foundation of Scripture, and uh, also looking at Genesis, the opening chapters is the foundation of God's Word. Uh, so love for the Hebrew language, love studying uh, creation and the flood and uh, just the foundation of God's Word. And so studying the Dead Sea Scrolls, you're looking at ancient manuscripts and studying Hebrew language, and uh, there's all kinds of things to discover. Uh, from these manuscripts, and so uh, just a lot to glean from these texts, and so I've spent a lot of time in that over the last uh, 10-15 years or so. Tell us a little bit, bit about the background of the Dead Sea Scrolls, because I, I know, um, you know, in our in our area of uh, uh, focus, uh, the Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls comes up a lot, but I think for the general uh, layperson, uh, what is the significance of the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and what makes them so special um, you know, and, and Qumran so special? Yeah, uh, so it's a great question. And so for many people, they know that the Dead Sea Scrolls are important. They've heard about them, but they're not exactly sure why uh, they're so significant for biblical scholarship. And so between 1947 and 1956, just after World War II, uh, you have roughly 900 manuscripts. They're fragmentary manuscripts being discovered in uh, 11 caves along the northwestern shore of the Dead Sea. Uh, and so of these, uh, these manuscripts are dated between 250 BC and AD 68, uh, when the site of Qumran was destroyed. Um, and so you've got, uh, of these manuscripts, you've got religious, uh, uh, Jewish religious texts, sectarian texts. We've got apocryphal and pseudepigraphal texts. Many of them were, uh, uh, before unknown texts, uh, you know, so we found some texts that we had no idea existed, uh, which is phenomenal as well. And then over 200 of these manuscripts are actually what we call biblical manuscripts. And so every book of the Bible except for Esther is attested among the manuscripts. Um, and so, but many of the manuscripts are indeed fragmentary. There are some that are better preserved than others, but for the most part, they are fragmentary. And so as you look at uh, these texts, as far as the biblical text, and, and as we look at this, by the way, um, Really, the Dead Sea Scrolls have really transformed our understanding of Second Temple Judaism. Of course, the, the backdrop of the New Testament uh, period there. 
and of course also the the history of the text and interpretation of the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament as well. And so they've really uh, just shed a lot of ancient light uh, for uh, our study of these texts here. So uh, that's just so, a shell. That's that's a uh, very interesting. And you know the finding uh, this the nation of Israel came back into existence in 1948. Mm -hmm. um, when it was reestablished, it's really interesting that the Dead Sea Scrolls were found just before that took place. Is there any significance there? Is there any reason to consider that special? It just seems so, you know, quote, coincidental that that, that would happen like that. Is that is there is there a reason why? Yeah, I, I don't know why uh, in God's good providence that he allowed mm -hmm. that to happen, but certainly does seem to be uh, significant, although I don't think this side of eternity will know uh, all the reasons for that. Yeah, uh, this certainly yeah. is significant. There's a lot of interesting stories. Um, uh, Eliezer Sukinik, who's at Hebrew University of Jerusalem, for example, uh, was at that time. You've got the, the British mandate. Uh, you've got uh, a lot of political unrest there in Israel at the time. Um, and uh, so a lot of uh, <laughs> uh, issues there with politics. And so you couldn't just travel uh, there in the land. And so... Uh, where the scrolls were discovered in the Judean wilderness uh, then was under Jordanian rule um, oh, at wow. the time. And so it was, you couldn't just go out to the caves and, and go start looking there. Uh, so it was much more difficult than that. And so uh, he was actually going to Bethlehem uh, kind of um, uh, and, and trying to get a deal to get some of these manuscripts from one of the dealers there in Bethlehem. And so he recalls um doing that during that time when of course the vote took place the un to partition yes. you know the state mm -hmm. of israel mm -hmm. and so there those those moments were not lost on people uh during that time uh and so certainly very interesting that this uh, one of the greatest archaeological discoveries ever uh happened during this time and came to light during this time and not only that there's this tremendous story not only of the discovery of the scrolls but also um the scrolls coming to light for public and for scholars getting their hands on it and the publication of the scrolls. I mean, Hollywood uh, can't make this stuff up. I mean, this is uh, this stuff is legendary. Uh, the stories about the scrolls. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. It, it like you said, Hollywood can't make it up. It almost seems beyond comprehension to me uh, just that they, they found these. But um, tell us a little bit about that. You said it changed a lot of our understanding of the second temple. I thought that was a really interesting uh, uh, tease you, you did there. Uh, but, but um, you know, some people are thinking, how did this change things? When, when these scrolls were discovered, did it change doctrine? Did it change uh, people's understanding of what is taught in the Bible? Or was this uh, other things that we've, we've learned and gained that amplify what we already uh, no, yeah. to be true. Good question. Uh, I don't think it changes what we understand doctrine uh, in scripture. So um, uh, one of the things that it does do for us, though, is it uh, gives us a glimpse into when we've got our own, our most ancient extant that is still in existence manuscripts of non-biblical texts, for example. Most of the texts are non-biblical texts, but they're dealing with uh, scripture. They are rewritten scripture. They are uh, commentaries, uh, now a little different than commentaries today, uh, but there's all kind of religious texts that that provide us a window into uh, ancient Jewish interpretation, and so which we did not have before. And so we were able to kind of look over the shoulders of the ancients 
and see how they were both understanding the biblical text and how they were employing these biblical texts for whatever purposes, uh, for religious, political purposes, whatever it may have been. And so it's just a, a phenomenal thing that we have as we look at the, the earliest uh, history of interpretation here that we have. And so I think that's important as we interact, uh, as we study the Word of God, we do so in community, right, as the body of Christ. Uh, not that it's a vote what the text means. That's not what I mean. Uh, the sure. text means what it means, but that we learn in community and we interact and we are able to uh, uh, self-check, you know, our, you know, ourselves against uh, these ideas and so on. And we're able to look at how the ancients uh, were looking at these texts, how they were living out these texts, how these texts uh, actually impacted their lives, uh, how these texts actually ordered their daily lives. And so this is a phenomenal thing as we look at the different types of prayers, uh, prayer texts, wisdom texts. Um, and one of those I want to talk about, uh, a prayer text uh, there, for example, uh, which gives us an interesting insight into their understanding of the creation account itself, but also how they uh, lived that out, how it impacted their lives. And so there's so much to it. Does it change our doctrine? I don't think so. Um, and so the biblical text is fixed, and I think we see confirmation of that. So there's nothing in the Dead Sea Scrolls that overturns uh, doctrinal teaching in Christianity or anything like that. And so uh, early on, there were a few sensationalist kind of reports, uh, but those have been put to bed long ago. Uh, so what we find is that uh, these texts confirm what we've already understood about the biblical text, um, uh, doctrinally and so on, but it really has provided for us a really unique window into ancient interpretation, and that is of tremendous value. So, yeah, let's dig a little deeper there. And um, just again for for those listening who may not know as much about the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, when the Bible, the Bible we have today, um, mm. I want to talk very specifically, like you said, about the, like the Genesis uh, account of creation and how the uh, the insight that we have from how they interpreted that. What you're talking about there. I yeah. think that's really, really interesting. And I want to focus on that. But before we do that, um, just for our listeners, can you um, break down the significance of the how the Bible actually came to be today um, based on the manuscripts that that we had before the Dead Sea Scrolls were found? And then what hap what that did for us as far as uh, validating the scriptures and <laughs> uh, giving us an even more solid foundation sure. um, to, to build our lives on? Yeah, so as I mentioned, we've got over 200 of the scrolls, so roughly 900 manuscripts, uh, over 200 of them are biblical manuscripts there, and so, uh, or portions of the Bible of itself, these are fragmentary texts, so every book except for Esther, as I mentioned, is represented among uh, these manuscripts, so again, they're the Old Testament though, right? What's that? The Old Testament? Correct. Uh, so not the all... new... We're not dealing with the New Testament here. No, there are no New Testament manuscripts uh, that are found that these are all uh, Hebrew Bible, Old Testament uh, manuscripts here, again, from 250 BC to AD 68. So that actually coincides partly with the New Testament era. Uh, so for example, there is one manuscript that most people are uh, in particular familiar with, and that's usually uh, uh, known as uh, 1Q Isaiah A, or what many people know as the Great Isaiah Scroll. So this is the only virtually complete uh, biblical manuscript that we have. It's dated to about 125 BC. Uh, just absolutely a phenomenal manuscript that we have. So also makes it the oldest known copy of the book of Isaiah that we have. And there are some fascinating readings there in uh, the great Isaiah scroll, for example, uh, in the suffering servant uh, song, for example, in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. I uh, got some interesting uh, textual readings there, uh, but uh, maybe at some point, if we have time, we could. 
but the Torah itself is uh, very well represented. Roughly 100 manuscripts of the Torah uh, are represented there. What's interesting there is you have some manuscripts that have just the, the Genesis portion of the Torah, some manuscripts that just have the Exodus portion, some that just have Leviticus and so on. But we also have manuscripts that have the Genesis and Exodus portion of text. So we know that the, 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 the content of Exodus follows Genesis. We have some manuscripts that have uh, portions of Exodus and Leviticus uh, on the same manuscript. So we know that Leviticus follows Exodus, for example. And we even have evidence from Qumran, from our earliest manuscripts, uh, some of the so-called 4Q, uh, 4Q reworked Pentateuch manuscripts in particular. Uh, and I'll just give the, the, the labels here just in case anybody wants to look them up. Uh, but 4Q 364, 4Q 365, and 4Q 366, for example. <clears throat> what do those numbers designate for, yeah. for our listeners? So 4, 4 represents K4, Q represents Qumran. So you got 1Q Isaiah A. It's the first Isaiah scroll from Cave 1, the first uh, cave where scrolls were found. Uh, so 4Q 364 is uh, K4 at Qumran. Uh, and it's and you start numbering each of these manuscripts, and so there's roughly 600 manuscripts from K4 alone, oh, and wow. so so these are uh, 4Q 364 through 366, and they were labeled uh, 4Q reworked Pentateuch. But what we've uh, actually seen is that there was, these are actually um, um, copies, editions of the Torah. And what we find with these, these actually were once complete Torah scrolls. So we actually have evidence from Qumran as well of complete Torah scrolls. Uh, so you've got the entire Torah on a, a single manuscript as well, uh, which is pretty phenomenal. Of course, we have that tradition uh, up to today where you have Torah scrolls in a synagogue, for example. Uh, and so, but we find evidence of that there at Qumran, which is pretty phenomenal. But we've got other biblical books there at Qumran uh, that are very popular. We've got roughly 21 copies of the book of Isaiah. I mentioned the great Isaiah scroll, for example. We've got roughly 35 copies of the Psalter. Uh, so very popular in antiquity, just as it is today. Um, and so we've got commentaries on Isaiah and the Psalter and so on, all kind of all kind of other uh, compositions written concerning these biblical texts here. But what's interesting here, as I mentioned, um, these ancient biblical scrolls from Qumran represent our oldest biblical manuscripts, and they are extremely valuable. They 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 fill in for us um, this gap this major gap in the history of the biblical text, and they provide a window into the condition of the text during what is known as the Second Temple period. So prior to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, right, uh, the earliest available Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament were from the medieval period, right? And in fact, the oldest complete copy of the Hebrew Bible, um, uh, which our modern Hebrew and English Bibles are based upon, is what is called the Leningrad Codex. It's dated to about A.D. 1008, uh, the other uh, codex, the Aleppo Codex, uh, portions of it were destroyed uh, when uh, Israel was uh, voted to be a nation again. Uh, right. The Arabs rioted there in Aleppo, Syria. Uh, portions of the Aleppo Codex, that uh, one was dated AD 930. And that was the crown. That was the uh, standard there. But the uh, Leningrad Codex um, um, uh, it is a great uh, representative of the Ben Asher tradition there that is... Uh, uh, the uh, Aleppo Codex, and so this so, that, so, that family. Yeah, so so Dr. Lyon, then you're saying that literally these these um, Dead Sea Scrolls are a, almost a thousand years or a thousand years older than what we had prior to their them being found. Is that right? Correct. Correct. So the the Bible, our Bibles today, both Hebrew Bibles and English Bibles, which are based on, are based off of the Leningrad Codex, which is dated to AD 1008. So. 
Um, so this is uh, the, the Masoretic text. When we talk about this, this is a family of texts, not just one particular manuscript. So we have this uh, this group of uh, Jewish scribes known as the Masoretes. Um, uh, the Masora is the Hebrew term that means tradition. We're talking about uh, not tradition in a negative sense, but we're talking about the textual tradition in which they preserved meticulously <clears throat> over the centuries there. So roughly from about 8,500 to 1,000, you had the Masoretes uh, preserving the biblical text, uh, this uh, tradition uh, there. So, however, none of the earlier copies of the biblical books from the Second Temple period were known to have survived uh, because they're written on scrolls. This is animal skin, you know, parchment, treated leather. And so they deteriorate. They wear out over time, and they're usually uh, ceremoniously buried in what's called a geniza, uh, from the Hebrew term genaz, which means to hide away. And so we didn't have, or we didn't know of any uh, manuscripts from much earlier period, from the Second Temple period, that is until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that's what I was talking about, really uh, filled in this major gap we had. Uh, prior to the Dead Sea uh, Scrolls, all we knew of really was the Nash, this teeny tiny little Nash papyrus, which mm -hmm. was dated to about 125 BC. Uh, and so, in fact, they actually looked at the uh, the handwriting on that. And when they saw an image of the great Isaiah scroll, where I would say, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's from the same time period there. Wow. Uh, and so the biblical scrolls then from Qumran, as I mentioned, are dated 250 B.C. to A.D. 68. And so they take the dating of the available biblical manuscripts back a thousand years or more, as you mentioned, in some cases, 1200 years or so. We've got some manuscript, for example, we've got a Samuel scroll that goes back to 250 B.C. You're talking within now, according to Jewish tradition, many hold the closing of the canon uh, around the time of Ezra, around the end of the fifth century BC. That's what I hold to, although the, there are other scholars who will place it later in the second century, first century, or even as late as the end of the first century AD. I don't hold to that. I hold to an earlier uh, closing of the canon around the uh, end of the fifth century BC. Uh, but regardless, the closing of the Old Testament canon or. Correct. Okay. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so regardless of where you understand the closing of the canon to be, you're talking about manuscripts that either, if you hold to a later date, precede the closing of the canon, wow. which is pretty phenomenal, yeah. or if you take the earlier date for the closing of the canon, which I do, you're talking about are, are within a few hundred years of the closing of the canon. That's awfully remarkable there. Uh, so we've got manuscripts here now that are roughly 1,000 to 1,200 years older than what we previously had. And so... Uh, one of the interesting things we see here is that many of these ancient scrolls from Qumran closely match the medieval Masoretic text tradition, right? Mm. So the Masoretes are preserving a much earlier text tradition. Now we have manuscripts from that uh, earlier time period, from the Second Temple period. And so they closely match the later medieval Masoretic text tradition, which our modern Hebrew and English Bibles are based upon. When you say, uh, so Dr. Really Lyon, I'm sorry, when you say Masoretic tradition for our, our listeners, um, Explain that, the, the Masoretic tradition, um, as far as copying the Bible. That's what you're referring to? Yeah. And so uh, so we talk about the Masoretes. We're talking about a group of Jewish scribes. Uh, we talk about the Masor. That's what I was talking about, this, this term meaning tradition here. So mm -hmm. they're preserving the text tradition. And so they added uh, things around the text. There was Rabbi Akiva put it, this, this protective fence around the Torah, uh, to preserve the faithful reading and transmission of the text, but also the faithful reading of the text. There's actually interpretation and preserved around the text in the mm -hmm. scribal uh, tradition here, which a lot of people don't realize, I think. And so they added the vowel points, which are not part of the God-breathed text, the consonantal text, right? The Hebrew text is just all consonants. They add vowel points, these little dots and lines uh, beneath the letters, in the letters, 
you've got these accent marks, uh, which help with not only pronunciation, but also syntactical um, issues there. So we get interpretive uh, things there. We've got Masora Parva and Magna. We've got uh, interpretive issues. We've got readings, stuff like that. There's all kinds of things that the, the Masoretes are doing there in order to preserve uh, the biblical text here. Not only that, but a particular textual uh, tradition and interpretation as well. And as that's we what that's what uh, you know. A lot of people find so hard to believe out and about is that uh, how is it possible that these guys could hand copy the Bible over <laughs> thousands and thousands of years and it not change over time? It just seems kind of crazy, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, they don't have copy machines or anything, so you know how can we consistently do that and uh, uh, speak to that? That 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 helped verify that. Yeah, we, we've got <clears throat> we've got evidence uh, from early on of the uh, the scribal traditions and the things that they would uh, put in place for the copying of scrolls and so on. Uh, you know, so the scribes would count uh, every word of the Torah, for example. They would count every uh, let you know every uh, verse of the Torah. I mean, I mean, they go through and they know the middle letter, they know the middle word of the Torah, and so on. Uh, so they were very meticulous in what they did. And so when we find the, uh, the, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, these biblical texts there, uh, again, uh, they closely match the later medieval Masoretic texts. These texts at Qumran, uh, we call them proto-MT, proto-Masoretic texts. That is because the Masoretes weren't around yet. It's mm -hmm. the same text tradition that the later Masoretes were preserving. Hence, we call it proto-MT. Oh, right? So we've got the MT later on, medieval period. And we call it proto-MT when we talk about the same text tradition, which is represented there at Qumran. Um, but these manuscripts, again, it represents the same text tradition, which we find a thousand years later, which is remarkable. And so, uh, so really just confirming that the biblical text has been faithfully preserved over the centuries. And so, for example, I'll just bring up one of my favorites is I love to look at uh, 4Q Genesis B. So again, from K4, the second copy of Genesis from K4. This is a manuscript dated to the first century AD, a remarkable manuscript, by the way, in this case, because it's one of the few examples we have of virtually the entire creation account preserved. Uh, and so is that uh, Genesis so, one, one through uh, uh, two, one through three? Yeah, it's got really, uh, really one, one through about verse 28. So it's got the majority of the creation account preserved. Uh, there's very beautiful uh, preserved there. Um <clears throat> But uh, when you look at 4Q Genesis B, for example, uh, it's rare, it's significant because it preserves, I and mean, we've got the opening words of scripture that's just incredible to read this first century text of the creation account uh, there. And so uh, it's virtually identical to the medieval Masoretic text. I think there's one uh, uh, orthographical difference, one spelling difference. That's not a textual variant. That's just a, a spelling difference there, one letter. So they, you would spell the same word, for example, uh, with, with uh, with an additional letter or without it, it didn't matter. Uh, so we have what we call the full or plenae spelling. We have what we call defective spelling, um, and so it, it wasn't one was a wrong spelling and the other was a correct spelling. They just spelled it different ways. Um, and so I don't want to get in too much detail there. But it's, it's virtually identical to the Masoretic text that we have today. When you look at four Q Genesis B, but what Jesus what Jesus was reading was actually what we're reading also is what you're saying. Well, and that's the point. So in other words, uh, when we read the text of the Genesis creation account today, which is based on the Masoretic text, we are reading the same text that people were reading 2000 years ago during the second temple period. Right? That's incredible. And so yeah, that's good news. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, so and, and Jesus references, I mean, he, he refers to Genesis, he refers to the law, he refers to the prophets. And so 
we know that what we're reading is what he was referencing. There's no guessing about that he had, you know, you know, potentially some different version of the Bible than what we have today. Yeah. And so we can have confidence that the biblical text has been preserved, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a, a bigger picture than that. So we don't want to oversimplify what we find among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, the biblical texts are remarkable, not just because we find manuscripts that we call Proto-MT, which uh, confirm the faithful transmission of the text over the centuries, uh, but we also uh, find biblical texts there that shed light on the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, which is known as the Septuagint, So, which does differ at times from the Masoretic text, depending on which book of the Bible you're looking at. So in the Torah, for example, uh, you're talking minor differences, uh, a word here, a word there. You've got the the volve, you know, and here, and it's not there. I mean, so there's nothing changing anything doctrinally or anything like that. You're just talking some slight little changes, uh, that kind of thing. So minor changes. Other books of the Bible, however, we see significant changes. For example, in the book of Jeremiah, where we have uh, whole sections that differ, that are missing uh, in one versus the other, or that are rearranged. We have different order in the uh, uh, MT Jeremiah versus the Septuagint Jeremiah, uh, for example. Uh, so interestingly enough, uh, scholars kind of, many scholars kind of question the validity of the Septuagint as a reliable translation. Uh, and what's interesting is that the New Testament writers, for example, often when they cite from the Old Testament, they cite the Greek translation. Uh, and so the question then is raised, is the Septuagint a reliable translation? Mm -hmm. Right. That's, that's an important question as we yeah. look at the New Testament, for example, and their use yeah. of the Old Testament. And so one of the things that they found, for example, uh, some of the biblical scrolls at Qumran revealed the existence of a Hebrew base text, a Hebrew vorlog, um, for the readings that are found in Greek translations. So we actually have a Hebrew text that underlies the Greek translation, these variant readings that we find from the Masoretic text, uh, which suggests that the Septuagint is actually a faithful conservative uh, translation of the Hebrew text that actually existed during that time, during the Second Temple period, during the period of the New Testament. Uh, so, for example, we actually have two Jeremiah manuscripts, the 4Q Jeremiah B and 4Q Jeremiah D, which attest to a Hebrew text tradition that underlies the Greek version of Jeremiah, which, by the way, is a shorter version uh, with some sections of text that's arranged in, a, in an order that's different from the Masoretic text. So, simply put, the variant readings uh, that are attested in the biblical scrolls from Qumran indicate that the Septuagint translators carefully worked from a Hebrew text tradition that differed from the Masoretic text that actually existed during that time. And so really validating the Septuagint as a reliable translation from the Second Temple period. I think that's also fascinating and important uh, that we see that among the Dead Sea Scrolls as well. And I'll add one other thing here, because I want to make sure that our hearers have a complete picture here so that we don't misspeak when we talk about the biblical text of Qumran. Sure. Uh, there's also a few manuscripts there as well that reflect another Hebrew text known as the Samaritan Pentateuch. And so uh, many might not be as familiar with the Samaritan Pentateuch. Uh, this is what is known as a deliberate revision or a, a recension of an earlier Hebrew text tradition uh, that's attested at Qumran and, of course, preserved in the Masoretic text. So they kind of take it and expand it a little bit uh, to kind of uh, harmonize text within the Torah. That's uh, what they do. So it largely represents the Masoretic text tradition, but you have some expansions and so on, some interpretive uh, moves that are being made. So this When you say expansions, when you say expansions, do you mean um, as in 
they're doing this in order to to explain more hmm. what is yeah. what is being written. Correct. So they'll take passages, parallel passages from elsewhere in the Torah and insert it there, for example. Um, and so, uh, so they often uh, expand certain texts by inserting parallel material from other passages within the Torah. And in fact, it even includes a few what we call sectarian insertions, additions. Uh, so additions that are made by these sectarian groups, uh, such as, for example, in the Decalogue, they actually add a command that they are to worship at Mount Gerizim. Like, for example, and now that's a later thing that we see, uh, for example, uh, discussed in John 4. That's an issue there with the Samaritan woman at the well, right? Do yeah. we worship at this mountain or do we worship at that mountain? Well, this is one of those. Uh, we, we have texts uh, from this time period now, right? So before the Dead Sea Scrolls, we had relatively late copies of the Samaritan Pentateuch. But now what we have are texts such as 4Q Paleo Exodus M, for example, which is an written in ancient Paleo Hebrew, uh, which is phenomenal. Uh, so it's the what is Paleo? Hebrew. What is Paleo Hebrew? So it's the old Hebrew script. Uh, so it looks more like a, it's earlier. Uh, <clears throat> looks a little bit more pictographic, if you will. Hmm. Uh, it's a little bit more. Uh, it, it looks like the ancient Phoenician script, uh, and so it's streamlined and it looks more like the Hebrew square or Jewish script uh, once you get into after the exile. Uh, and so you have the influence of Aramaic that takes place in the exile uh, after 586 BC uh -huh. uh, when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple and they go into exile. Uh, and so you have a large influence there, which changes. So you have different scripts that are being used. Uh, you have the Paleo-Hebrew, which looks like Phoenician. Then you've got the Jewish square script. It's also known as the Assyrian or the uh, Aramaic square script uh, that takes place. Same language written in two different scripts. Uh, so we actually have both scripts represented among the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's really, uh, really cool. In fact, a lot of the manuscripts are written are written in the uh, the Jewish square script, but the Tetragrammaton, the divine name Yahweh, is written in Paleo Hebrew, for example. Oh wow! Uh, and so there's uh, lots of interesting, neat little things that you see uh, in these texts here. But going back to the Samaritan Pentateuch, real quick, we had relatively late copies. Now we've got <clears throat> earlier copies, such as uh, 4Q Paleo Exodus M, uh, for example, and so. Uh, that's a manuscript that's dated to the first century BC. That is remarkable. And so it close, it's closely related to the Samaritan Pentateuch, uh, including the textual expansions, but it actually lacks um, the sectarian readings that were added due to certain beliefs because of the Samaritan community. So some of those particular ones that are particular to the Samaritan community, while this one has expansions, it's that same tradition, it lacks the Samaritan expansions, which is very interesting it suggests that the sectarian readings of the Samaritans may have been a later alteration to an expansionist uh, to an expansionistic text uh, edition of the Torah that was already known in antiquity and was already in use among various communities at that time. So we had that text tradition present there, but it looks it looks like we had later alterations to that by the Samaritans. Uh, so we have earlier editions of that that don't have the Samaritan editions, for example. So this is phenomenal. We've got text. The the probably the most representative of those we got some texts that are what they call non-aligned they they can't really peg it into one text tradition, but the text tradition that's represented the most is the proto MT that is the same text tradition which the Masoretes are preserving which our Bibles today are based on that's good news which again confirming the faithful trans uh, transmission of the text over the centuries but we also do find and this is good news we find Hebrew texts 
that underlie the Septuagint, which confirm or invalidate the Septuagint as a faithful, conservative translation of a Hebrew text tradition that actually existed during that time. We also have a Hebrew text tradition represented there, the Samaritan Pentateuch as well, which is also remarkable. So this is a tremendous picture that we have being filled in from the Second Temple period. So what we have is a stable, what I would say is, along with the Emmanuel Tov who argued, that what we have here is from our earliest extant texts, our earliest physical manuscripts, our earliest evidence, we have a stable text tradition alongside these uh, various text traditions as well. Uh, so what, what many refer to as this textual plurality, but we have a stable text tradition from the earliest uh, times there alongside these other text traditions there. Uh, so, so this is far from being uh, something uh, to shy away from. This is something that should excite us as Christians, as lovers of the word of God. So that's fantastic. I, I, I love what you're you're sharing with us here. So, you know, what comes to my mind is, um, you know, I've heard recently that there's a rumor that the Chinese government wants to rewrite the Bible and take certain portions out and uh, rewrite things so it fits better for uh, supporting the authority of the, the uh, Chinese government. Mm. Um, and then, of course, we have things like the New World Translation, which is the Jehovah's Witness Bible, mm. which um, they uh, modified certain scriptures in order to fit their theological uh, viewpoints. Yeah. Um, and mm. so then we get to what you're talking about here, the Samaritan Pentateuch and these sorts of things. And I think the question some people ask is, well, how do you know that this one's not the right one and this one is the right one? And uh, how do you know that, you know, you know, with all these, quote, different versions, right? Um, what gives you the confidence that the Bible we have today is, and I know you answered this in a sense already, but if you could just reestablish that, why is it that our Bible today is the correct version as opposed to the Samaritan Pentateuch or... Yeah. you know, whatever else might be. Yeah, it's a good question there. Um, so in particular, there was this idea, <clears throat> there's kind of two different understandings here uh, that scholars have had as far as the development of the text, historically speaking, <clears throat> uh -huh. uh, going back to this time period. And so uh, one view has been this idea of the, um, uh, the standardization of the Hebrew text. Uh, so in other words, what we have is textual plurality. There's no fixed text in particular. Uh, and then by the end of the first century AD, what we actually find at the end of the first century, uh, again, after the destruction of the temple in AD 70 by the Romans, uh, you, you got to understand this is a major historical event. Uh, the entire religious socio-political system has been destroyed. Uh, the people are in exile once again, uh, and again, ultimately, after the second revolt under uh, Bar Kokhba in the second century. Uh, but after the destruction of the temple in the first century A.D. and A.D. 70, this changed everything. Um, and so, again, this disrupted everything. By the end of the first century, so you've got the, the so the, um, uh, the Sadducees, who were the primary ones there in the temple, they're gone, no longer to be heard from again. Uh, the, uh, the Essenes, uh, the site was destroyed in A.D. 68 as the Roman army is on its way to Jerusalem. Uh, uh, perhaps they were at Masada uh, for the last stand there uh, up until AD 73 or 74 when Masada fell, uh, which uh, Josephus records uh, when the, the Romans laid siege to Masada. Uh, remarkable story there. Uh, but perhaps the uh, Essenes were there. We have some manuscripts um, that have been matched to a scribe from Qumran there at Masada, for example. 
and so perhaps some of them fled south from uh, Qumran, from the northwestern shore of the Dead Sea, down south to Masada, to that uh, fortress uh, plateau that Herod had built on top of. And uh, But the Essenes were never heard from again uh, until we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is really a telling story, uh, by the way, because they hid those scrolls intending to come back for them. And mm. this is really a tragic story. They never came back for them. And wow. uh, in God's good providence, though, they were preserved. Yeah. Uh, was it remarkably uh, for posterity's sake. And so that, that in and of itself is another story. But back to your question, though, um, the idea was that there was a, a standardization of the Hebrew text. By the end of the first century, the only group really that is left are the Pharisees. Uh, and so you've got the Pharisees uh, and you've got these religious scribes and scholars there uh, at Yavne. There are no council there. They're not determining what scripture and so on. But you do have um, uh, that's what's uh, left there. And so there are some from the from the end of the first century on. Everything is proto-MT. There is a uniformity across the board. Uh, so all the Hebrew texts, all the rabbinic uh, traditions are citing proto-MT. In fact, the uh, Greek versions from the second century. Theodosian, Aquila, Symmachus, all of them, right, which were meant to supersede the old Greek from earlier, are mm. actually bringing their versions more in alignment with the Proto-MT. Everything is Proto-MT from the end of the first century on. And so scholars look at that and they, they talk about the standardization of the text, the idea that you have textual plurality, and then there's this, in some ways, an arbitrary decision that's made in which you standardize the text and we go with a particular text tradition, which mm. still kind of begs the question then, why this one and not the others? Well, Emmanuel Tov has actually come along and says, no, he talks about the myth of the standardization of scripture. And I remember when I first saw that, it kind of made my ears kind of perk up say, what? Yeah. Uh, and I read that and he made some interesting points because what he talks about is, no, because the one says, no, we have textual plurality followed by textual uniformity, hmm. right? And there's this, this standardization that takes place uh, arbitrarily or so on. He says, no, what we actually have is we have a text tradition that's associated with the temple. Naturally, with the scribes who are associated with the temple, the preservation, that's where uh, the biblical text would have been stored up in the temple. Uh, we see evidence of that in scripture itself, where the holy books are stored up in holy places. Uh, there in the um, the Ark of the Covenant, for example, we see the Shechem, the same thing as well. We see a rabbinic tradition that uh, testifies to uh, these texts being stored up in the temple and so on. So we see biblical and extra biblical witness there to the tradition of storing up these books in a holy place. And the temple would have been the natural place to store these books. So he talks about the, the Proto-MT as uh, the stable text tradition. It's what we find from our earliest text being there among uh, and, and associated with the temple. Then you have outside of the temple, you have all of these what we call free copies. So you got all kinds of different texts there from out. There's no uh, regulation of that outside of the temple and, and the scribal tradition and so on. And so naturally, you're going to find other text traditions. That's that's not a big deal. What he talks about there, though, is what we have from the earliest time is we have a stable text tradition from the beginning there, from the temple associated with the temple. And we have that there at Qumran as well. It's the most attested text tradition at Qumran. Even though we do have other text traditions represented, hmm. that's fine. So there is a textual plurality, but he talks about a stable text tradition. And so we have a uniformity of text. Uh, so we have plurality alongside uniformity. 
So from our earliest witnesses, we have a stable, uniform text tradition there. And I think uh, his understanding is, I think, a better understanding. And what actually happens is, just as history itself unfolded, naturally, the other text traditions fell by the wayside. Yeah, there was yeah. no arbitrary decision made by these scholars to say, yep, we want this text tradition and not that text tradition. Hmm. There was always that stable text tradition there associated with the temple. After the destruction of the temple, everything else, I mean, everything was disrupted there at the destruction of the temple. And the one that, that, that continues uh, is, of course, the stable text tradition, the proto-MT. Everything else just fell into disuse. Yeah, because so the early church fathers... it better that way, I think. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And the early church fathers, I, I was actually reading some uh, really interesting things. Uh, I, I was told that you could essentially rebuild, I mean, this is the New Testament, but you could essentially rebuild the entire New Testament just based on the on the quotes of the Old Testament. Yes. I'm, I'm sorry, of the early church fathers, which yeah. I found that to be pretty amazing uh, in yeah. and of itself. And that that also confirms that this is the inspired word of God, um, as opposed to, like you said, the things like the Samaritan Pentateuch, which is more commentary on the scripture. And then we we get to, oh, but this is the scriptures. These are the inspired words of God. And, and by the way, even with the Samaritan Pentateuch, it's not that you say, well, which one do you like better? We, It's essentially the same text tradition. Uh, when you look at the Samaritan Pentateuch and the Proto-MT, it's very obvious where we have the additions and why they did those additions there. So we, uh, we can assess these manuscripts that we're looking at uh, and understand why these, the, these additions are made and so on. By the way, in antiquity, scribes didn't didn't take as much issue with adding things to the text, not, not because there was a lack of reverence for the Word of God. It's because they revered it as the Word of God that they would put uh, additional explanatory notes, or they would just add something there, uh, so kind of interpretation in and around the text. And so it wasn't because they had a lower view of Scripture, it's because they viewed it uh, as authoritative, and it was just simply a part of the scribal tradition in, in adding those things to the text. So it's a little different for us to think about, uh, but it's very interesting as we go back and look at how the ancient scribes handled the biblical text and preserved it for posterity's sake. So because it's not only about uh, preserving the letters, every John Tittle of the text, but it's also preserving uh, the reading of the text and helping people understand the text itself. So, uh, Dr. Lyon, both of your books deal very specifically with, for example, like the Genesis flood and the Genesis creation account. Yeah. Um, that's your focus on, okay, I'm going to examine the Dead Sea Scrolls in this, this particular area. Yeah. Um, what for you, as you've been studying this and as you were writing those books, um, is there anything that stands out as really kind of hits you as, whoa, this is amazing. This is not something I had seen before, not something I had thought of before. Is there anything that that for you was uh, a really uh, kind of something that kind of um, was amazing to you? Well, all of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's really quite remarkable. You know, I, I refer to the Masoretes, the later scribes, as theological studs because they are. We ought to be grateful for the Masoretes. And I look at these scribes. And that's these, not a uh, phrase you you hear very often. <laughs> well, it's a phrase that I use. <laughs> I, uh, I, I like that. I'm going to. I'm going to put that on a shirt or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we we all should be grateful for the Masoretes, but also as I go back and look at the Second Temple period and look at the scribes and the work that they were doing there, it is, is remarkable. Uh, the text that they have is very interesting, by the way. Uh, so a couple of things I can talk about. Uh, one of the things that I looked at, um, for example, among the biblical manuscripts, because remember, there's interpretation that even takes place around the biblical text on the scribal level. And that's something that people don't think about oftentimes. 
So, um, for example, in the way these the sense divisions, uh, so we have what are called patuka and satuma. Patuka is a large or an open section break, kind of like paragraph divisions, large units of text. Uh, and there's certain ways that scribes would uh, uh, mark those large section breaks there. And then we have what are called a satuma. These are small or closed section breaks, subdivisions within those larger units. And so the way that you divide a text, the way that you lay out a text uh, tells something about how you understand the text. Uh, the way that you lay a text out affects the way that someone reads a text. Uh, this is an interpretive move on the part of the scribes. Now, what's interesting here, for example, with the Genesis manuscripts, is these are our earliest extant texts that we have. Now, we don't know if these sense divisions represent uh, the, the author's sense divisions, the original sense divisions, or if this is at the least uh, early interpretation of the text from the first centuries BC and first century AD. So, for example, with the Genesis creation account, we see large section breaks, these uh, uh, patuko, the, in the plural form there, these uh, large section breaks uh, at the end of each of the days of creation. So at the end of uh, verse five, the end of day one, or at the end of verse eight, at the end, et cetera, at the end of day two, three, four, five, six, you see these large section breaks there. So it's divided according to days. We say that's great and all that makes sense. Uh, but what's interesting, by the way, uh, and so you have satuma, smaller divisions as well. Sometimes they vary from scribe to scribe because those are interpretive moves. But we have the same sense divisions there in 4Q Genesis B, which I uh, mentioned preserves the creation account. Um, a pretty good portion of that. 4Q Genesis G, a first century BC manuscript, also does as well. Both of those actually preserve the opening five verses as well, which is very interesting uh, because the same sense divisions in those first century BC and first century AD manuscripts at Qumran are the same sense divisions. It's not only the, the, the letters, the words that are preserved exactly in the Leningrad Codex, but the sense divisions are also preserved in the Leningrad Codex as well. Uh, so we have the same uh, paragraph divisions uh, breaking break up there in the later medieval Masoretic text uh, <clears throat> that we have there in this, uh, there in the, uh, Qumran text. Now, what's interesting is we don't have a section break until after verse five, which, by the way, it's not because there's too small amount of text. We actually have other Qumran biblical texts that have uh, section breaks in much smaller areas of text there. So it's not because there's a small unit of text, five verses there, that's discouraging that. Uh, it's actually to be read as a single unit. And what we have is physical manuscript evidence that suggests here uh, that all the first five verses were to be read as part of day one. There's no suggestion whatsoever that verse one and or verse two is separate from verses three through five. And that's an important interpretive issue for today because we have scholars who want to read the beginning of day one. Some will say it's at the uh, beginning uh, there in verse one. The initial creative act on day one is in verse one, the creation of the heavens and the earth. Verse two is then uh, given us in a, a, a parenthetical statement describing uh, the condition of the earth as it was originally created on day one. And then verse three continues the creation there with the creation of light. And that's the traditional view there. That is what most creationists hold to. Uh, there are others who would say, <clears throat> no, day one begins on verse two. And verse one either represents a, uh, a heading, right? Uh, which would then uh, potentially mean that verse two begins with pre-existent matter, right? Where does that come from? Yeah. Uh, not only that, 
uh, or if verse one is the original creative act, then verse two is where day one begins, then you also allow for uh, an undetermined amount of time prior to day one, right? So you got both the issue of the potential for allowing for a pre-existent matter and also for an undetermined amount, unspecified amount of time prior to day one. Others uh, yet further will place the beginning of day one on day three with verse one, again, serving as a heading. And therefore you have pre-existent uh, matter potentially uh, there when day one begins in verse three, or they see verse one as the creation of the universe there in the beginning, billions of years ago, and this unspecified time until the beginning of day one in verse three. Uh, so again, this is a major interpretive question here uh, for the beginning of day one. What's interesting here among the manuscripts at Qumran is that there's no suggestion whatsoever that verses one and two are to be read separate, that they are distinct from verses three through five. Verses one through five are to be read as a single text unit. That is, day one begins in verse one uh, with the creation of the heavens and the earth. Uh, and so I find that very interesting that we have positive textual evidence with no suggestion whatsoever uh, of day one beginning anywhere other than in verse one. And so that's just an interesting thing that I look at from the scribal uh, 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 divisions there, just the uh, the layout of the creation narrative. Uh, yeah, so and like you said, that's a that's a big debate in our uh, you know among theologians and others today uh, over whether the it's actually six. Um, literal days of creation or whether these is, you know, like the framework hypothesis, which says, okay, they're, the days represent indefinite uh, amounts of time. Um, and so that's actually something that supports the fact that the Hebrews believed in a six day creation, 24 hour days as we know it. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Not only do they believe in six days, 24 hours, but they, the day one began there in verse one. And so that the creation of man was at the beginning, not billions of years after the beginning. Uh, and yeah. so, for example, what's another interesting thing here, just a fascinating thing. One of the most popular uh, manuscripts, one of the most popular uh, texts at Qumran is uh, the Book of Jubilees. So many of our hearers might have heard of the Book of Jubilees. Uh, it's actually uh, the Book of Jubilees. There's uh, uh, a number of copies found there. Um uh, at Qumran, very popular text there, uh, and also with uh, the Book of Enoch, two very popular books, which, by the way, are included, uh, for example, in the, uh, uh, the Ethiopic uh, Orthodox canon. Uh, but there are very popular books there at Qumran, uh, and so and there are popular books even today for some particular groups. Uh, but the Book of Jubilees and Enoch were very influential in the Second Temple period. Um, and the Book of Jubilees, very interestingly enough, you had this revelation to Moses out Mount Sinai, and he's recounting the angels recounting to Moses you know, from creation all the way up to Sinai. Uh, and so it goes back and it kind of gives the history there. And so you had this kind of retelling from creation all the way through. It's a very, uh, uh, very interesting book. But what we have with um, uh, the book of Jubilees at Qumran, I bring that up for a reason here. <clears throat> um, we actually find a Hebrew text of Jubilees at Qumran, 4Q Jubilees A. Uh, so it was originally written in Hebrew, of the book of Jubilees. It was translated into Greek, and subsequently it was translated into from Greek into Latin and Ethiopic. Uh, so the book is preserved in its entirety only in Ethiopic texts. Okay, uh, so it appears that the Hebrew text of Jubilees passed out of use sometime in antiquity. We don't know when. <clears throat> after the destruction of the Second Temple in A.D. 70. And so nothing from the Hebrew text of Jubilees was thought to have survived, that is, 
until the discoveries there at Qumran. Now, all of a sudden, we have a Hebrew copy of the Book of Jubilees, and we actually have some extant text of the retelling part of creation. And so wow. we can go back and look at that. And one of the things we find there as well is that the Book of Jubilees was actually remarkably preserved as well by the scribes over the centuries. Uh, so it's really neat. But one of the neat things there, uh, there's 14 or 15 copies of Jubilees at Qumran. <clears throat> uh, but as you look at Jubilees uh, in the retelling of the creation account, so for example, on day one, uh, one of the things that it does, it's really neat is what it does. It, it talks about that all of these laws and all these ordinances and so on for Israel were not established at Sinai. These are part of the created order. They go back to creation. The Sabbath didn't begin then. It began at creation. Uh, mm. God uh, had Israel in mind in the first Sabbath. There's all these things that they're bringing up, which is actually uh, quite remarkable. But one of the things here with uh, in relationship to some of the questions that we're talking about here is on day one, uh, the book of Jubilees mentions in Jubilees 2 uh, in lines two, in, in 2 and 3, it mentions a total of seven great works that were created on day one. The heavens, the earth, the waters, and according to Jubilees, the angels were created on day one. The abysses, or the deep, the, the, the home, the deep, the depths, darkness, and light. So while the biblical base text, that is Genesis 1, 1 through 5, uh, is certainly discernible here, by the way. Uh, this retelling of God's creative acts on day one, it freely reformulates, it omits, and adds material. It lists all these angels and so on. It's really neat. But I want you to notice here, right, that it mentions here the creation of the heavens, the earth, the water. I mean, this, this is verses one and two that's included as part of day one, according to the book of Jubilees. Well, that, uh, and so, that, that shows us they're the Hebrews interpretation of Genesis. So we don't, we're actually finding out what they actually believed versus what we are imposing potentially on scripture because of a modern uh, correct. interpretation. Correct. Yeah. So, so you've got all kinds of interesting things that you're finding in these texts there at Qumran. Uh, Jubilees, of course, was known before that, but we actually have Hebrew manuscripts now uh, of, of Jubilees. And we have one that actually preserves uh, the retelling of the creation uh, narrative there. At That's Kumran. amazing. That oh, is that's amazing. incredible. Well, um, you know, have they, um, so, so are they, because these were found over a series of years, are they expecting to find more of these or are they, have they cleaned out all the caves and it's a, <laughs> it's a done deal? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. So there are literally hundreds, hundreds of caves in the Judean wilderness. If you've been to the Judean wilderness, you understand scripture's statement that people flee to the wilderness, you know, mm. when the armies come. I mean, great hiding places. The Jews would go into the wilderness and hide in these caves uh, when the Romans came. Uh, and so we've actually taken students there uh, with my university to dig at Wadi Murabat, which is one of the other locations where manuscripts were found. So Qumran, there are 11 caves there. Around that's around the northwestern shore of the Dead Sea, where Kerbet Qumran, the ruins of Qumran, uh, are, and so all around there, uh, you have um, kind of the the, the Marl Terrace, uh, kind of this plateau with the site sits on, and then you have these limestone cliffs that line it and go along north south uh, there in that ridge there. Uh, so we had caves that were found in the uh, limestone cliffs, and there in the Marl Terrace, uh, in, in which uh, the, the the site itself sits upon. Uh, and so some of those caves were were uh, dwelling places there in the Marl Terrace. 
the ones up in the limestone cliffs were almost certainly not dwelling places, but they're they're just there for hiding purposes. So there are literally hundreds of them. They've done uh, uh, surveys across the Judean wilderness. Um, and between 1947 and 1956, 11 caves were found to have manuscripts in them. But uh, beginning in like 1952, for example, further south at Wadi Murabat, uh, they found manuscripts from the second century AD. So wow. not quite as old, but just about. That's still pretty uh, old. <laughs> well, it's still pretty impressive. And yeah. so uh, they, of course, found manuscripts at Masada. Some of them almost certainly came from Qumran. So some of the ones at Masada date to the first century because Masada was destroyed in AD 73. Uh, so those date to the first century and earlier, those at Masada. Uh, and so we find some at Wadi Marabat, also at Nechal Hever. Uh, we find manuscripts from the second century as well. We find uh, documents uh, about daily life of Jews. They're hidden up there from the Roman army uh, before their deaths there. And sometimes they were uh, starved uh, to death there. Uh, all, all kind of tactics that the Roman army would do. Uh, but they have found, so they have found manuscripts at other locations in the Judean wilderness uh, besides Qumran. Uh, but the Dead Sea Scrolls in particular, right, specifically refer to the ones found at Qumran. And also sometimes when they talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, sometimes they include uh, the other manuscripts found <clears throat> at these other sites, such as Wadi Murabat, Nechal Hever, Masada, and a few other sites as well. Now, having said what you just said, <clears throat> um, uh, yes, they still anticipate. I've talked to people there. I've been there. I have dug in, in a cave at Wadi Murabat. I've been to the caves, uh, there at Qumran, various caves, uh, and uh, interacted with people who are there. And so they are, they are fairly certain. One, uh, there are hundreds of caves, and they're trying to find which ones might be the best ones to look in, uh, but they suspect that we might find more in the future. And so only a small, I mean, a tiny fraction have actually been excavated. Uh, wow. So there's so much out there that's not even been excavated. Uh, so the potential to find some is certainly out there. What's interesting is, if you remember back here recently, they actually found, uh, there in Nechal Hever, they actually found another fragment from um, uh, from the Book of the Twelve, a Greek copy of the Book of the Twelve uh, from a manuscript that was found earlier, uh, back in the 50s or 60s. Well, they found another fragment that belongs to that uh, just here recently there. And so uh, that was the first of those that had been found in basically 60 years. Uh, so that was pretty fun. So that is amazing. But, yeah. So there is potential to find more. Uh, so well, for those of you listening, you you heard it here from Dr. Lyon. Um, if you're an explorer, man, get out there. There's still stuff to find. So uh, yeah. <laughs> pretty incredible. But, well, uh, Dr. Lyon, thanks so, so much for uh, doing the program this evening and just being here and and uh, your expert lending us your ex expertise. So that's a big blessing. Yeah, uh, no problem. Uh, do we have time for uh, any, any more? Uh, I've got one other manuscript, but if yeah, not, yeah, okay. no, 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 tell us about it. We're, we're all right, so there's one other one that I just kind of mentioned here, and that's uh, uh, four, it's a four Q five oh four, uh, Divre Hamerot. It's the words of the luminaries. This is a, a prayer text, a liturgical text. And what they actually do is they have a prayer for each day of the week, and uh, so the prayer for day one, and they kind of work their way through the canon of scripture. So the prayer for day one they rehearse kind of these historical events, these great works of God. So day one prayer start, starts with creation, the creation of Adam, and it goes through the flood and the, the exodus and wilderness. And then it has kind of these prayers and, and these these uh, these cries for certain things and then kind of the conclusion. And so it kind of works its way through. 
What's interesting there, we've got interesting interpretations uh, and, and their understanding of Adam, for example. Uh, so they refer to Adam as our father, for example. Mm. Uh, they relate uh, the uh, the creation of Adam. He's created from the dust, yet he's created uh, uh, there. Uh, he reflects the glory of God. It's, it's language that's not used in the biblical text there, but it's found here. Uh, it talks about him being created with knowledge and all these kind of things there, and that the people of God are there had this knowledge there in the land, just as Adam, their father, had there in the land of Eden. It likens the land there that Adam inhabited to the land that the people of God were inhabiting there in um, the promised land, which, by the way, is something that we see in the Torah itself, that link between uh, the Garden of Eden and the land that God's people would inhabit, where God would tabernacle with his people as he tabernacled with Adam and Eve there in the Garden of Eden. Uh, but there's some interesting things that happen there. And one of the things that I want to bring up there is because uh, when we look at uh, 4Q504, this liturgical text, and I don't have time to get into all the details and the interpretations there. Uh, uh, I'll put a shameless plug. You can't check out my book on that deal more detail uh, with that. It is really interesting. But as far as the implications from this type of text, it's, it's a liturgical text, uh, but we find some neat things. One of the things that we see is that Adam was certainly understood by these ancient Jews as a historical figure, hmm. as he was also understood in other Qumran texts. So one of the things that we do see, and that's a, a discussion today, unfortunately, uh, that we see quite a bit, but in antiquity, these Jews saw Adam clearly uh, and unquestionably as a historical figure. And it was understood not only in this text, but also other Qumran texts. But it goes beyond this. And here's what's interesting. A biblical faith, right? a faith which is rooted, which is lived out, uh, it's rooted in history. Right? Our faith is a historical faith. It's rooted in history. The biblical text provided for these ancient Jews uh, the historical and theological basis for their prayers, for how they understood God, how they understood their relationship and their service to God. In other words, the Word of God actually impacted their lives. The Word of God ordered their very lives. So, interestingly enough, today, uh, as we deal with apologetics, I love apologetics, and we, we, we talk about defending the historical veracity of the biblical text, and we should. However, at the end of the day, what remains on the table is what does this text mean? Hmm. We can defend it all day long, but if we don't know what it means, if we can't apply it to our lives and live it out, it doesn't matter. And one of the things that I find remarkable with these uh, ancient Jews is that this text mattered to their lives. They believed it to be historical, and in fact, it was the reality of the great works of God in the past, in the creation of the universe, in the creation of Adam and Eve, in the flood, and all these things that they recall that provided the historical basis that God is faithful in the past, He is powerful, and they can trust Him in the present for their lives today. It ordered their very lives. It transformed their very lives. They didn't just believe that it was historical. They believed that God actually acted in the past and that he would act in their lives in the present as well. And I think there's so many lessons that we can learn from those from an antiquity, from those in the past that we can apply in our lives today. And so there's so many that you asked what I find remarkable. This is one of those things as you come along and look over the shoulders of these ancient Jews who were interpreting these texts and how valuable the word of God was for their lives. 
And I'm not so sure. And I think in some ways that can serve as a, a challenge to us today, uh, that it's not just something that we defend and something that we talk about and argue about and so on, but the Word of God transforms our lives. The Word of God is for living. Mm, I love that. The relational aspect, uh, it's so interesting because you're right. A lot of times when we look, we're studying these ancient texts and we're looking into the past and um, it can all, all often become depersonalized. And um, we just think of these people, it's hard to, to think of them as real people because they're, they're so long ago. And yet what you're saying there makes so much sense that um, in the same way that we emphasize a relationship with Christ, a relationship with God, that's what they were experiencing. They were experiencing a relationship with God that impacted the way they live. That's so cool. That's yep. uh, amazing to be able to look into their minds and their hearts the way they treated the word of God. That is, that is really special. Yep. Well, uh, Dr. Lyon, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to plug your books here because so if you if you've been listening to this, um, this interview, uh, please check out his books. If you want to look into more more of what he's been sharing, he's the author of Qumran Interpretation of the Genesis Flood and also the Genesis Creation Account in the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can check those out and uh, buy those. Uh, are those available on like Amazon and so forth? Or? Yeah, you can get them on Amazon. You can go to Whippenstock. You can go to Barnes & Noble pretty much any bookseller. Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks again, uh, Dr. Lyon. Really appreciate it. All right. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. My website's educateforlife.org. There's all kinds of resources up there for you, for families who want to raise kids uh, to become confident Christians. Um, there's classes, there's lessons, there's articles to read. We even have a class where we talk about the transmission of the, the word of God and we do look at the Qumran uh, Dead Sea Scrolls and some of those details that we talked about today. So uh, feel free to check those out. If you're listening, we'll be back with you again next week. And uh, thank you for taking the time to uh, join us. Uh, we look forward to being with you again. God bless you and have a great night.